Modern Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Camphouse. Chapter 4 The shore of the neighboring island was being actively laid down by a lava flow. I could make out a smoke cloud in the distance above the cone of a volcano, pouring upward into the atmosphere. The volcanic activity gave me a better sense of where I was. This was an area where the islands became larger, eventually giving way to a formative landmass, possibly destined to become a continent. The line of fire, the orange glow I now took in from multiple points in the distance, yielding new earth. I wondered if it should be thought of as a cooperative project or pitched warfare over territory the lava and the water coming into union or conflict and so revising their borders. Each lava flow made only minimal progress, instantly freezing into place on contact with the ocean. But I knew over time that progress would add up and much territory would be taken. Or so this all appeared, I reminded myself. This was the dream world, an imprecise pseudo-physical medium. I could not get too caught up in the stories my mind was fitting to my perception of it. The story building was easy. The dream world was an evocative place, and the images it cast made a certain sense. But I found again and more disciplined perception, as I slipped back to it, that these were mere shadows of some other's impression of things. The dark volcanic rock of that land-ocean boundary, the active lava flow beyond. The air did not choke me as I knew it should with the smoke rising from nearby vents. It was a landscape not overly troubled by the physical reality of volcanoes. My task here depended on me staying rooted in fixed perception, detached from my own story building. Stories come unbidden and early in our perception, but human stories force the wrong color to the dream world. It is an alien place. It works by different rules than our narratives. It goes against something in our nature to see things how they are to leave the story aside and take only the raw character of our perception. But the stories mislead, close off important possibilities, set the wrong expectations. I had landed and was walking through the jagged basalt landscape. My skin and clothing had developed into leather, as though immediately calloused by scraping against the hardened lava as I scrambled across it. The crystalline lily pads I had detached fluttered in the air behind me, There were fewer there than I had fastened to me, I thought, after a glance, the imprecise way of the dream world. In the larger islands and peninsulas of the nascent continent, I knew there would be more landmarks, those monuments and natural features of which I spoke earlier. I began to search through my memories as my orientation improved, making sense of my north-south position again from my current heading, having traveled inward on the new island for a few kilometers. It was there that I encountered another dreamer. The experience of meeting a human in that place is difficult to describe. So much of our perception as humans is feeling in gaps with our expectations. We look at a human face with a hardwired series of glances, encoding it as someone known or unknown, friend, family, enemy, stranger, my kind, other. This bias does not just determine how we see faces. It is as if all of human perception is blanketed in a user interface. Here is food, here is sex, here is danger. Don't concern yourself with this. 
In the dream world, there is neither human bias nor the raw perception it filters. We see, feel, and sense through some other interface, a different set of uses, a different way of being. We see our fellow humans as if we were some fish, noticing shadowy figures suddenly blocking the dull light that refracts off the surface of the water. There is no need to distinguish individual features, no such faculty of discretion, acknowledge and avoid. Those are the details our interface surfaces to us. Wandering in the dream world, having its perceptual filters masking our own, those avoidance urges were so strong that it took us quite some time to discover, in that naive dreaming of our youth, that these were other human beings. We always kept a distance, hid. At our bravest, we displayed the same caution and curiosity an earth dweller might give a bear of encountering one in the woods. Most amusing to me now, in retrospect, we mistook these figures at the time as alien creatures, possibly the native inhabitants of the dream world. I approached cautiously, not wanting to give alarm. This was unlikely to be Owen. My working assumption was that, as an untethered, Owen would be unraveled, unable to align the threads of himself into any purposeful motion. This figure before me moved of its own volition, maintained a boundary of sorts, fuzzy as it must be in this dreaming. As I walked forward, the figure started to move, then stopped. I saw recognition, an instinct to flee, but then it was clamped down. The old instincts would not own me. I remembered as a young girl I would wander out to the plains outside my small dome settlement, that future city. I was in a vac suit, of course. The atmosphere was not quite ready for long, unaided walks, but short stints were manageable, if I desired. Even the helmet could be omitted. The machines had made use of high-altitude genetics from the catalog that was the embryo store, splicing and all of us a tolerance for lower oxygenation. I wanted to remove a boot. The urge had struck me, some instinctive drive to feel bare soil or sand in my toes. But the dust of the plane was deceptive. I followed through, stripping the boot away quickly, the visor of the vac suit beginning to flash a warning. My atmosphere wouldn't be too disturbed, and I could feel it just a moment. Then, sharp pain, of course the light soil, fine and weightless, moved quickly out from underneath me, and the rock below was sharp, never once weathered by water, masked in the dust that the wind circulated all this time. My foot was cut immediately. My reaction was even more foolish. I felt exposed in that open plain. I panicked. I started to dart off, got less than a meter, then another sharp pain in my foot and another deep cut. I buckled over and stopped there, the boot just out of reach. I could hear a drone approaching. Already the machines were almost to me. Whether they had anticipated what I wanted to do or were just reacting quickly, I wasn't sure. I knew, in retrospect, of course, I had been gripped by that prey instinct to dart away that comes from open exposure. Such a silly thing, here on this plane with no animal in sight, no possible predator to stalk me. But my biology was such, always expecting a wild cat or beast of some sort to be stalking me, ready to give chase at any moment. I, she, to be this near another dreamer is to leak into one another, Mind wandering becomes wandering into other minds. Some graph of human consciousness extends its edges outwards, and we become permeable to each other. I had wandered into her memory by association. 
my own thinking of her prey instinct on seeing me triggering her recall. And she, of course, must be thinking of me, of him, the renouncer. Others had encountered him before, that this time was different. He was not like that flickering candle they had caught a glimpse of, half there, half removed from the dream world, a clear boundary always set up. Now he was an uncontrolled fire, sparks flickering, an unstated threat in a dry grassland. He was not on the station. I was on the surface. I am here now to find Owen, one of the untethered. A thread had pulled me back into myself and my own thoughts again. The meditation rites of old, the mix of insight and superstition that had led to them. The old masters would have given a chuckle to see me clinging so hard to the self. That ancient enemy, the old illusion. Here the dream world promised as much as anything to rid us of it. No self. Owen had achieved it. His thoughts and feelings dissipated throughout the dream world. I was here as a prospector looking to find some memory of his as one looks for a vein of minerals, making sense of the surface topology and composition, knowing the eras and epics, vastly different worlds that had inhabited one spot and now sat layered, a palimpsest of lost places. He was looking for a place of gathering, confluence, such as we gather in the dream world, not meeting face to face as now, but all drawn to the same places in our own time leaving footsteps inside other footsteps. I knew where he could go, where I could go, where you should go, renouncer. We are very near the cenotaph. I would aid you more if I could, but to be with you as we are now unnerves me, and I feel I draw near departing. I feel that heaviness of the sleep that takes us from here upon me, and I have just come to be in this place as I rest my head to watch this new world form in its fire before I shut my eyes and so leave for the waking world. She stepped past me, outside the overwhelming intimacy of our shared thinking. I mustered all the gratitude I could, imparting it to her in our separation, the cenotaph. So this was the monument to which I was nearest. I was further south than I'd calculated in my dead reckoning. It would be the best place in this region of the dream world to search for Owen. As I walked in the direction I had found in the other dreamer's mind, the landscape became more familiar. I had stood before the cenotaph many times. From a distance, it would appear as the fiction rather than the reality of Ziggurat, a place built to reach into heaven. I have said something before about the dream world and its bias, how it colors the dreamer's perspective with a different sort of knowing. The cenotaph was a smooth stone spire, in appearance, it reflected the work of some builder who had erected it there. It was clearly not natural. If this were all we had to go on, we might have simply called it a tower, or spire, or obelisk. It would be a structure with unknown purpose. But we could all feel, upon looking at it, that this was a memorial. To what? We could not say. 
It felt to us as a tomb, but one with no body, one which was built when the body could not be found or recovered. The grief, loss, and trepidation with which it was imbued. Even from an airy station, it seemed to overpower, and I had not yet come across it while dreaming on the surface. Thinking of my destination, walking as I was in the monument's direction, my awareness of the present had receded. I took a breath, felt the upward movement in my chest, then noticed a weight on my left leg. I reached my hand down and felt the hilt of a small sword. I drew it, felt its machete-like weight, tensed. What unconscious part of me had decided this was needed? Why? I was not surprised that it was a sword. Since I was limited to shifting my self-image, projectile weapons made little sense. The physics of the dream world seemed tailored to the immediacy of the grasp. Details became fuzzy as things moved further from an active dreamer. I could not rely on conservation of momentum at range. Thrown stones and the like would therefore not deter or damage the entities made up of dream stuff, as I had found through my travels. Any of these would merely be an annoyance. So I had experimented with close combat and simulation and crawled the archives of Earth for materials from which to learn. A primate fist is a weapon of only limited use, at least a human-sized one. I could increase the size and density of mine, but of the options within my power, this was far from optimal. With practice, I had been able to manifest swords, however. Flowing in form from machete to longsword, the versatility of a blade that could shift and not dull proved quite useful for even a peaceful traveler. The sword was now in my hand, and the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. As I tried to consciously place the environmental cue to which I was reacting, I found myself jumping to the side, pelted by fragments of basalt regolith. A small blast of rock had emanated from the space I had just left as something large erupted, leaving behind a hole or tunnel. That something large was a creature, my sensorium updated, what sort I wasn't sure yet, couldn't yet see clearly, the rock having pelted and scratched my face. I had closed my eyes and turned away in time, reopening them as soon as I dared, the remaining dust cloud hampering my visibility. I held the sword out and forward, point up, my arms slightly bent, the hilt just below my chest. I kept the point level with my eyes, hoping to ward off what I couldn't see with this threatening position, or at least to prevent a direct charge or pounce. The sword had grown in size and weight, and I brought my right hand below the left for added leverage on the hilt as it lengthened. I tracked motion in my right peripheral vision as the creature's arm curved out to strike me from the side, moving around the threat I had presented with the sword's point. I stepped my front foot back, swinging the blade sideways into the creature's hand or claw. There were finger-like gripping protuberances, three of which had chitinous or scaly, pincher-like extensions from the digit, weighty enough to bludgeon with, possibly adequate to stab or slice, certainly to grip. I struck the surface of one of these pincher claws, leaving a half-inch or so gash. This deflection was sufficient to guard me for the time. Only one of the pinchers had made it past the blade, brushing against the cloth on my arm. Redirecting the force from that strike, I swung the sword blade back from the claw, switching legs and slicing down diagonally to the left, toward what I hoped would be the creature's center of mass. I was aiming to either do significant damage, or at least force it to back off so I could assess it and shape my strategy accordingly. Fulfilling one of those hopes, the creature withdrew to avoid my blade. With the dust cloud dissipating, I could size it up. 
Its movement back had been rapid, a skitter, as it consolidated in my vision for a brief moment. Three feathery appendages circled what must have been the head, possibly proboscis or antenna, held in the air with some tension. At the center of the face, I saw what looked like roots or flexible branches coated in scale, or reptilian worms writhing in soil. These were directly above what I assumed was the mouth, or at least one point of entry to the creature's digestive system. The scaled worms were there, most likely, to guide food into it. Below that, two more pincher claws set like a split lower mandible below and to the sides of the mouth. Behind the mouth were several round black fish eyes. The exact number I couldn't count. They dotted the upper ring of a fleshy circle. The creature's body seemed like that of a reptilian beetle. Under and over shell were covered in scale and natural plating. It had six arms, the other five seeming the equal to the one that had struck out at me previously, differing only in position and bend. It stood on the back four, the front arms and the face presented aggressively toward me. It shifted sideways with a half leap, half lunge. It was fast, though thankfully I had the less demanding task of only needing to pivot to meet it as it circled. I shifted to avoid another strike from the arms, moving my back foot again to reposition for a counter-strike but the rock fragment on which I was standing snapped and gave way. As I lost my footing, I turned the motion into a backward roll, not willing to fall prone so near the creature. The other claw swooped into the space where my head had been. The cloth over my shoulder and my skin below tore as the roll took them over the jagged surface of the hardened lava, and I recovered into a crouch. I had kept the blade of the sword out to the side during my roll, and now cut upward and diagonally again as the creature charged me, hoping to take advantage of my momentary loss of footing. It tried to pull its face back at the last second, too late for a clear break as my blade swung through and hacked off one of the mandible pinchers. It emitted a sound somewhere between a shriek and a valve releasing pressure. The gambit of striking so soon into my recovery had cost me. The creature's right forward arm had hooked from just outside my vision. Two of the pinchers were past my defenses and gripped my chest, lifting me off my feet. Shapeshifter that I was, by sucking in air and flexing, I increased in density and hardness in response, an exaggeration of how I had calloused against the sharp assault earlier. It was not a struggle I could keep up indefinitely, though. The arm was bent, the joint. Joints are critical but weak points in the creature's anatomy, enablers of motion but susceptible to damage that can compromise them limiting or preventing motion. The first bend in the arm I could make out was two-thirds of a meter or so back from the pincher hand. I removed my left hand from the hilt of the sword and took an underhanded grip on the flat of the blade, pulling it in to trap the base of the pincher hand into my chest. I hinged my hips and swung them upward, bringing the full weight and strength of my legs on the other side of the joint, then bridged and drove my hips upward to force the joint one direction while my arms and legs pulled the other sides of the appendage back the opposite way. Few realize the effectiveness of a sword as a grappling instrument. There are many situations in which the opponent is past the point of the blade of another swordsman, a dodge or parry bringing them into close quarters. The most straightforward course of action from there is to repurpose the blade into a large lever. In fiction and historical writings and the archives, the sword is almost never cast in this purpose. In the fighting manuals from the sword's era, however, it is a chief concern. I found myself engaged with a creature armored in such a way that direct strikes did limited damage, 
not unlike a medieval duelist or knight opting to half-sword a fully armed opponent. The creature shrieked again and released me, the tendons and ligaments that maintained its grip now compromised. I relaxed the double grip on the sword and landed into a crouch with my left hand still on the flat of the blade. The other claw struck at me from the right in a hook again. Having learned the creature's behavior and therefore expecting the blow, I caught it and attempted to wrench around with the leverage of the half-sword grip. But the creature retreated from it, was retreating from me. Its skitter took it back into the hole as quickly as it had emerged, a dust cloud smaller than the first obscuring the entrance. I did not pursue, but waited and caught my breath. I did not expect the creature to come out again. It had appeared suddenly from the tunnels below the surface of the basalt lava. The creature was not here to do battle, but to catch prey opportunistically. When the prey put up a fight as I had, its best bet was to count its losses and vanish as quickly as it came. It would not return to seek revenge. The terror of tendons or ligaments at the joint and the loss of the mandible would already be a high cost for an engagement from which it was returning empty-handed. Truth be told, I am not sure if it was thinking or feeling anything as we fought. I had been in close proximity and nothing had leaked through to me. Our best estimate is that creatures in the dream world are automatons. This was certainly not the first I'd encountered that was an aggressor towards me, though this was the first of its kind I had come across. There were many such creatures that stalked the boundary between the surface and either underground caverns or the sea, emerging from soil or rock or water to attempt to seize prey and drag them into the depths. For all I knew, an engagement like this could have been responsible for what happened to Owen and the other untethered, though this seemed unlikely. Many dreamers, especially as children, had been caught by creatures, dragged underground or underwater, only to wake back in the real world as one wakes from a nightmare. As I walked away from the site of my battle, I felt my wounds begin to close. My self-image was being repaired, corrections worked out from the difference between my current state and who I intended to be. The skin of my shoulder and the cloth above it were equal in their deficits, being pieced together through the same incremental process. I expected I would have time for this healing to run its course before I reached the cenotaph. Writes the Renouncer novella is out in Kindle and paperback format now. The album The Scania Prime and the EP Rights of the Renouncer are available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening.